0: I want to show you three things this morning from this passage, and they all have to do from David being strengthened and his response to being so nurtured and so fed in his faith in a moment of disaster and distress that that radiated out as a form of compassion to all those that he encountered. In other words, I want you to see this morning... That grace in is grace out. That wherever you feed, then from there you're going to lead. Whatever you're feeding upon, whatever is nurturing your soul, whatever restores you, whatever gives you strength, it's out of that, and to the degree that you receive it, it's out of that source where you are strengthened that you lead others. Or you're in relation, found in relation, to treat others. Grace in, grace out. And if you're not being nurtured and restored and strengthened by the Lord, you do have another source. And I want to challenge that source. Because that source, unlike the Lord, will fail you. And it will fail you most particularly when you are invited to show undeserved grace, mercy, and assistance to others. Because our selfishness, that that is the, the root and the core of our soul, is selfishness, self. And we can feel very sorry for other people. That's called sentiment. That's pity for other people. And it goes no further simply pity. But compassion is different. Compassion enters into a relationship and shares burdens, and it shows a graciousness that reflects a source of strength that is beyond that person, that allows them to not be self-seeking, but to seek the welfare and the benefit of another person. Grace in, grace out. And so if you find yourself in relationships struggling, struggling in the face of relationships to show real compassion, real grace to other people, look to your source and look to see if you're really drawing upon the graces that strengthen us from God or from another source. Look at three things here. First of all, I want you to see that the source of grace, then I want you to see the strategy or how grace plays itself out, how grace looks, what it looks like uh, in shoe leather, and then I want you to see the sight of grace. We're going to hone in on the Brook Bezer, and we're going to look at that in conclusion. So first of all, this morning, I want you to see the source of strength. David, who is the famous author of Psalm 23, is always mindful of, not simply that he is leading out of a shepherd's heart, but that he has a shepherd. Psalm 23 is a, is a psalm of sheep who are boasting in their shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leadeth. And so it's sheep who are talking to other sheep about their source of strength, their shepherd. And in Psalm 23, verse 3, David writes, My shepherd, he restores my soul. My shepherd restores my soul. Philip Keller writing on uh, keeping uh, or the Psalm 23 as a shepherd. A shepherd looks at Psalm 23, talks about sheep and their restoration. He says, sheep are not naturally strong animals and they are ever reliant upon the vigilance and the strength of a shepherd. He says, primarily sheep, because their wool can grow so long and with the lanolin can become so heavy, they will be cast down, meaning that they will lay on their side and they will roll to such a degree that then scrambling to try to right themselves, they will just push themselves over so that they're flat on the back, helpless to do anything. That is a disaster. They are needing to be restored. And if they are not, then they are vulnerable to attack and to predators or simply dying in the, in the elements. Philip Keller writes this, Sheep do not really enjoy the solution, which is to not only be put back on their feet, but to be sheared of all the things that are a great endangering weight upon them. When the shearing is over, both the sheep and the owner are relieved. There's no longer the threat of being cast down, while for the sheep there is the pleasure of being set free from such a hot, woolly, heavy coat. Often their fleece is clogged with filthy manure, mud, burrs, sticks, ticks. What a relief to be rid of it all. Similarly, for the Christian, it's dealing with our old self that ever begins to grow like so much wool. Our master must take us in hand and apply the keen cutting edge of his word to our lives. It may be an unpleasant business for a time, no doubt we'll struggle and kick, but what a relief when it's over. Oh, the pleasure of being set free from ourselves. What a restoration. Ziklag is in ruins. We read that David is now sitting in the ashes of what was his city. It was a small town that was granted to him. And he would do raids throughout the land and return to this small town where his family and the the families of all of his warriors lived. Some 600 men. They come back from a raid and they find that days earlier all of their family, all their possessions, all their wealth, their livestock, the things that were in their homes, their homes themselves have been removed and taken away. David has been sheared. We don't know all the reasons that this took place, but God would use this disaster once again to point David to his true source of strength. We find the men looking after their grief when they literally, literally cried so that they could cry no more. Men weeping until they had no tears left. Then, from their tears, they move to anger. And their anger is directed toward their leader, David, such they now begin to talk about attack, to stone him. And David is distressed, it says. David's soul is cast down. But David, in verse 6, a pivotal moment, it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Do you get the picture? Cast down, on his back, a disaster. David's God draws near. He's lifted up. He's strengthened. He's restored. And now... We see him moving forward in verses 9, setting out with his 600 men to go forward in pursuit of those that had taken their wives and their children. Sheep cast down, sheep restored, shepherd leader moving forward now. All because of the source of his strength being found in God. That's what the scripture teaches. But would you bear me with me for a moment of application? I want to tell you quickly here, as you look at this, I want you to see the where, the what, and the how that, that David was strengthened. The where is a catastrophe, a disaster, it's suffering. David was God met him at the point of his trials, his being distressed. Be very careful, along with me, as to how you interpret your suffering. And be very cautious about the agreements that you make. What do I mean? We can look at trial. We can look at suffering. We can look and see the zigzag around us in smoke. We can see what has turned into a disaster when we least expect it. We can look in that environment of suffering and we can say, I've been abandoned by God. Or we can say, I'm being punished by God. Or I deserve this. Those are all agreements that we make that we need to confess and we need to retract. David, in that environment, as if he were sheared in that moment, seized the shepherd's hand in this. He didn't turn away from God, he turned to his God. So where God most offers us himself is in our distress. Can you identify it? Secondly, the what. We're not left to... to really figure this out on our own because the what is, he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus tells all the saints there, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then down in verse seventeen, he says, as he's going through the parts of armor, he says, take the helmet of salvation, that is, knowledge of what's involved in your forgiveness, and the sword of the spirit, which is the words of God, the promises of God, God's character, God's God's truths to you, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer. And supplication, Again, God meets him in his distress as he meets us in our distress. And David found him there and not only found him there, but he was strengthened. He strengthened himself in the Lord. And this is not a, a passive thing here. This is something that David is doing. It says that David strengthened himself in the Lord, not simply the Lord strengthened David. It wasn't simply God who was already there coming to David as much as David said, I'm going to the source of strength here. I'm going back or I'm returning. I'm going to strengthen myself in the Lord. Also, it's not Christian literature. It's not Christian music alone. It's not simply uh, uh, Reading a a book about how 10 ways to be a strong Christian, I believe that it's the Word. David was one who knew about God, his theology was such that he could meditate on the truths about God. He knew of the covenant, that is the promise of a relationship to be their God and for him to always have his identity as God's son. He would reflect on his being chosen by God, the least of the tribe of Jesse, the sons of Jesse. He would be mindful of Samuel's anointing of him and he would look at every trial in that light. If he doesn't have those truths, He won't be strengthened during the time of distress. I stick my nose in the Psalms, most particularly during times of distress. Psalm 63 is a psalm that was written, it tells us as a capstone, it was written when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Ziklag is in the wilderness of Judah. This psalm may very well have been written during this period. David says in verse 3, Psalm 63, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. In his distress, this is how he is exacting strength. I look at this disaster, I look at this situation, this trial in my life, but I see life in the truth that God's love for me is steadfast. He has not abandoned me in my hour of need. Now remember, his wife, his children, they're gone. And he doesn't know will they be found? Will we receive our, our possessions back? What about my men? They're over here talking about stoning me. But David's strength, meanwhile, is beginning to perk stronger and stronger. Verse 8 of Psalm 63. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The right hand of his men are gathering stones. But there's a right hand, a source of strength that is feeding his soul. It's reviving his soul. In the midst of this disaster, David is finding strength. And it's coming as he speaks to his God. He calls for Abiathar, he calls for a preacher. He calls for prayer. He calls for something called the ephod. We're not quite sure what it is, but it's best defined as a vestment of the church. This is a vestment of the church. Okay? If I if you receive a communication from me and I sign it, at the bottom of that communication will be the words in hoc signi or simply the letters I-H-S. Constantine, the first Christian emperor, went to battle with his troops for the gospel. And he had on the shields of all of his men a cross and the letters I-H-S, which was Latin for in Hok Signi, which means in his sign, under his banner, with he as our source, in his sign, and the other was was understood and assumed in his sign, from his strength we conquer. Not in my strength. David was being prepared. Here in this distress to go and conquer, but it would be out of his time, out of his meeting with the Lord. And there he calls for the ephod, such that he could even look at something as you look at on Sunday morning and receive a reminder God has not abandoned me, God is with me, my God is a strong God, I will follow this God, I am his child, and he leads forward. Secondly, it says in verse 9 that David set out, and at this point he has 600 men, and soon when he reaches the, the brook Besor, 200 men out of sheer exhaustion cannot cross the torrent of the river. So they stay on one side of the river, and 400 men go forward. Isn't it, it's a side road, but isn't it, a little remarkable that these men followed David. There must have been something different, such that they were looking as a group, at first of all to say, just stone him. But he comes away from this time with his God, and I believe that there was, as he writes in another psalm, those who look to the Lord, their faces are radiant. There was a something emanating from him that made and marked him out to be a man who had been refreshed and strengthened and was able to lead out of that strength. It's like Jesus being pushed by the crowds to the edge of the cliff as they were going to push him off. And then he looks and he walks right through and the crowds spread. David was a leader and these men, without another word, They strap on their swords, they get on their horses, their tired horses again, and they follow him to the point of exhaustion. And along the way, they find a man that's only given the name of an Egyptian. Now David at this point is down from 600 men to 400 men. But he's not daunted. If you look back in verse 8, there is a promise That in answer to his prayer, he is praying with Abiathar, his minister. And in his prayer, God reminds him and gives him a promise. He says, you shall overtake them and you shall rescue them. And with those two promises, I'm going to overtake them and I'm going to get back what is ours. I'm going to rescue them. He rides forward. And an Egyptian crosses their way he's weak he's three days without bread and water and as he confessed here as we read earlier in verse 13 he was a servant he fell sick in verse 14 he was a part of the attack now we don't know how what his role was but he was there in the attack to zeklag not to mention the attack upon other parts of judah and god's people He was a stranger. He was as far away from a Hebrew as you could get. He worshipped foreign gods. He was not of their race. He was of the enemy. He was a part of that group that attacked. He's a slave. He's a servant. But David showed him grace. We read in verse 12 that David gave him a piece of a fig cake. Now, this is a fig cake, okay? And um, it's really delicious. And I can tell you that if you were to go camping or take a long hike or be with just uh, very humble food uh, storage things when it came meal time, if you had this fig cake, It would be both sweet to the taste, and because of the fig's high fruit and sugar content, it would be very reviving. David, out of the very source and out of the very season of his having been revived by the Lord, offers something very reviving to the one who is undeserving. Can you imagine? I mean, maybe his men are scratching their head. We don't have time for this. Just like the parable of the Good Samaritan. We don't have time for you to, to we're busy. We're on a mission. We don't have time to show practical mercy to someone who is helpless, who is homeless, who is hopeless. This past week, I, it was a busy day. But in that busy day, I found myself at the center by myself. Kind of strange sometimes to find myself there. I know you think that I'm by myself at the center all the time, but that's not usually the case. Um, And so I find myself by myself at the center, and I'm having a very intimate time of worship with God. I mean, it's like... God is speaking to me loud and clear, and and it's wonderful. And and because I'm by myself, I can even sing, and I'm, I'm worshiping. And then I was drawn away. I was interrupted. It was someone that really needed love. They needed attention. They needed practical mercy. Well, I wish I could tell you that I just moved right into that situation with, with ease. But I really begrudged it. I mean, I was looking at my watch. How long is this going to go on? I want to go back to singing. And I got nailed. The Lord, I'm telling you as a Presbyterian, this ought to freak you out, but as a, it freaks me out. The Lord said, you know, I'm really sorry to have bothered you in your worship. And you're being strengthened by me to come and show mercy and strength to another. And I'm like, okay, Lord, I got it. Because that's what he did to us. He left his father's side to enter into our worlds where we are helpless, homeless, and hopeless, and give us and bring us the strength from a relationship with God that he has always enjoyed." I got it. I got it, Jesus. I get it. I do need my times of private worship, but it's got to go somewhere. You see, compassion, compassion is a community affair. We can be passionate about showing pity, but compassion is a community affair. The gospel at work in your life is going to be evidenced by your showing grace and mercy to others, or else you need to go back and check whether or not you're really understanding the gospel. You with me? It's called the priesthood of believers. Today is Reformation Sunday. Martin Luther emphasized that the clergy, the priests, the monks, the nuns, They share the same calling that Joe Plowman, the uneducated, share. If you are a Christian, you are a priest also. If you say Christian, you're saying, I'm a little Christ, and I will bear his image to everybody along the way. Practical mercy. What does that look like? And then lastly, Oh, by the way, I know I'm over my time here, but you might miss this in verse 15. This is not an interrogation that David does. He didn't give him a little fig, and it says there, his spirit revived in verse 12. Now remember, and I like what Eugene Peterson says here, Eugene Peterson says for the words, his spirit revived, that life began again in this Egyptian this Egyptian looks at David, and in essence, in verse 15, he is now wanting to make a promise to David to show him where the enemy is, but he wants to promise in the name of David's God. His life is being transformed by the compassion and the grace that is being modeled by David. David is not preaching a sermon with words. He's preaching a sermon. He's preaching the gospel by showing it, by acting it out, by being like our Savior. He is shepherding this lost, cast-down sheep. And I believe in verse 15, in essence, what the servant is saying. I had a bad master. Will you deliver me from that master, and will you be my master? Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, and 29. Jesus tells us, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. This reviving Egyptian, this is how I take care of my men. This is how I take care of fellow wilderness travelers. I see myself as a wilderness traveler. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. I believe this weary Egyptian found rest for his soul there and said, I would have you, David, to be my master. And I would believe that like the gathering demoniac, he longed to be at David's side, inseparable from the one that delivered his life and revived his soul. Lastly, I want you to see this morning, I want you to see David's feeding, his grace that goes forward now to both the undeserving and the wicked. And I would say at this point, we're talking about his church. The Egyptian is the stranger, the sojourner. These men now are his brothers in grace. His brothers that he has been with for years now. You can look, and some of you have a footnote to go back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2, where it says that after David left Saul that there were a number of men that joined him at the cave of Adullam. And they were those that were depressed, in debt, and discontent. Those that were cast down themselves. Those that needed a shepherd to revive them and lift them up. And many of the Psalms reflect that they were written during these wilderness wandering years of David. David would have been not only taking strength from the Lord and what he knew of his steadfast love and his faithfulness to his promises, that he was not abandoned in his distress, and he would have been teaching these very men. This is his church. What a motley church he has too. He's got those that on one side of the river or the brook, Besor? they're the stragglers, and I want to be fair to them. They, they were exhausted. They had been in the battle, but they were losing heart out of just sheer physical exhaustion. And I'm sure it was compounded by the emotional grief and the fear that so drains us by losing their children and their wives. And David doesn't say anything as they stop, unable to cross the river. 400 men ride out with David. They're successful. And they're so successful, they look at David. And now, instead of saying, stone David, they say, the spoil of David. They said, everything, we've got everything that we lost back, plus... We've got everything that the Amalekites have been plundering. We are rich men, and it's all because of David. We followed David to victory. This is all David's stuff. It all belongs to him. Without him, we wouldn't have been able to achieve this. And they come there to the Brook Besser again, and it says that at the end of verse 21, They crossed the river, or the brook, and David came near to the people. He greeted them. One man said he saluted them, and he held them as fine fellows. And then there were those that were wicked among David. And we don't mean wicked, evil in the sense of being outside of understanding of God. Men who had resorted back to their own selfish needs and selfish agendas and selfish desires. Men who, Charles Spurgeon would say, they were of the same race of David, but they were not of the same grace of David. Men who didn't understand yet how to apply the gospel. Men who didn't quite, I believe that they would say, we are true Hebrews, we are Jews. We are children of Abraham. We are saved. But then we see by their actions, they didn't understand that it was only by grace. They have moved from a position in the army and in the ranks of 600 to an elite 400 that later, in Chronicles, they will be known as David's mighty men. But at this moment, they see themselves as superior men. So David looks, and here on the brook, Besser, on one side you have, as it were, the stragglers, the broken, the exhausted, the humbled, the weak in the church. On the other side you see the strong, the victorious, the superior in the church. And David comes, and he intercedes for them both, and he offers a third way. And that third way is the gospel. lays down a rule and that rule is grace in grace out